when I was a 15-year-old kid, uh, I made a mistake. Joyriding in your aunt's car or your neighbor's car was a crime, but not to us. Don't visit me anymore. I won't talk to you anymore. Start grieving now. It was the mental warfare that you can never prepare for. 2.3 million of them that are sitting in these sales. Once we land that airport contract, it was ball game. It was like no looking back from there. I went from going from that guy who was being declined for jobs to now being the CEO of a company. I didn't have the social capital that a lot of my peers inside of the tech community have. What, what we're doing in reshaping the narrative of what success looks like after prison. What's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here, your host for Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for listening in. You just heard Marcus Bullock. As you can probably tell, Marcus had a rough start in his young life, even ending up in prison. But his amazing story just got started there. He went on to become a successful entrepreneur in commercial construction and is now the founder and CEO of Flickshot, a company that helps those incarcerated to stay connected with family, friends, and outside allies. Our episode is sponsored by Sherelle Dorsey's The Plug and by Valence, an exciting new community for black professionals. Listen into our next episode for details on how exactly Valence will be working with us. I want to give a shout out and a thanks again to all those out there on the front lines of the pandemic, as well as those with essential jobs that put them in harm's way. I'd also like to recognize that there is real suffering out there, as people's lives and livelihoods are at stake. You know, we continue to put out Founders Unfound as a way to offer hope and inspiration, and maybe even a little welcome distraction, so please keep listening in. As always, you can find our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and YouTube, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. Feel free to drop us a review on Apple or Podchaser. We would so appreciate it. Please follow, like, and share and help us grow. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode 12 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Marcus Bullock, founder and CEO of FlickShop, a company that helps families stay connected to their incarcerated loved ones. Welcome to the show, Marcus, and thanks for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super pumped to be here. So this current crisis is impacting everyone's lives. So let me just start with how are you doing? How's your family and your community? You know, what's interesting, I mean, we're living in very strange time right now, and we're learning how to adjust with, to, you know, to this in our home. I have my wife and my two small children that live with me, one's nine and one's four, and uh, we're learning how to adjust to this new norm. It's kind of scary because, you know, my wife is from New York, and she has family members that are there. And while they were really, really hit hard with, with, with COVID, um, yeah. there's been some people that are popping up inside of our lives where, you know, we're like, oh, man, they were hit. A couple of people inside of her family, They're, some of their her, her family's best friends, they actually passed away. And so that was tough to get those kinds of phone calls. But wow. It, it, what it also does is it, it, it helps to reinforce the value of the moment. And, and we're spending a lot of time basking in moments here in the home. Well, that's definitely one way to approach it. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'm sorry about the losses in your larger network. Yeah, thank you. And I think we're all at the end of this going to end up knowing people that were profoundly affected. Yeah, I said that to a friend of mine. I was like, you know, we're all going to know, we're all going to be like one degree away from someone who was um, impacted by this, especially as the numbers continue to climb. So very, very interesting times we're living in, but I'm prayerful that uh, we come out of this even stronger as a nation. Absolutely. So let's let's just quickly start off with help the listeners understand what, what exactly is FlickShop and what's it all about? Yeah. So we built the technology that helps keep families connected to their incarcerated loved ones. In prison, I'm commonly quoted as saying, you know, in prison, getting mail is like hitting the lottery. There are very few people that have the opportunity to be able to engage with their loved ones on the other side of those fences because it's just too hard to write a letter or um, send a photo. And in prison, there isn't any, any internet. So no Instagram or Facebook or easy emailing or definitely not any text messaging. And so we wanted to figure out a way to fill that gap. And we first started with our mobile application that's connecting tons of families around the country. Awesome. Uh, I mean, it's so profound, just this connection 
And uh, we're going to talk a lot more about that. But before we dive more into the company, let's hear a little bit about your background. I've uh, done some uh, studying up on you and you have an amazing story. So why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself? Uh, thank you again, Daniel. Man, if I, I'll tell you this. I, I never thought in a million years that this would be my life. Like this is the 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 the, the Marcus wave that I'm riding right now. And I am absolutely <laughs> loving every moment of it. When I was a 15 year old kid, uh, I made a mistake, um, a huge mistake and stole a car from a man in a mall parking lot uh, just a few weeks before Christmas. But that was again, uh, about a week after my 15th birthday and, 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 and it landed with me standing in front of a judge as I listened to him sentence me to eight years in adult maximum security prisons. And so I spent the rest of my teenage years, all of my early 20s, all inside of some of the, you know, Virginia State's worst prisons. So that was a very interesting and rough time for me as a kid. The, the, the thing that saved me, honestly, if I'm being honest, is my naivety in, in the, you know, while we are learning that brain science is proving that these young kids, you know, haven't mentally developed to the point where they understand the legal ramifications behind the decisions that they make. Right. My brain couldn't even understand not only the, the legal ramifications, but just how, how life could, could change for me and everyone else that was connected to me at that time. So I sat there in front of that judge in that courtroom. And while he gave me those eight years, I kind of like shrugged my shoulders and was like, all right, cool. I, I'll be home in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, all right, whatever you say, like, I'll be home in a couple of weeks, right? Like a little, you know, a slap in the wrist, like, right? You know, my mom puts me on punishment. This was, you know, very similar to that, or at least I thought, but things changed and that was not my reality. Yes. So I was a 15 year old boy and I know there's a disconnect between rational thinking and actions. And can you go back and tell us how do you get to the point where you talk yourself into stealing a car? Yeah, man. I mean, I grew up in the D.C. area in the mid-90s. I had to do too much talking myself into it, right? Like er The very few people my age, like like this time, like 85% of the people were Black. And the majority of them in D.C. at that time, right? And the majority of them lived in, you know, low to middle income communities like I did. And with that came a lot of crime. And, and, and to be honest, it was like blurred line crimes, right? Like, you know, smoking weed was a crime to everyone else, but not us. Right. Or like, you know, joyriding in your aunt's car or your neighbor's car was a crime, but not to us, right? Like fighting, you know, fist fighting in the neighborhood, um, in the neighborhood playground because, you know, you lost a game of basketball was an obvious crime, but not to us. Like these were all norms for us. And so um, that norm that my friends and I slipped into became a part of our became a part of our weekend. We would steal a car or, you know, find a car. Someone was warming up in the driveway, jump in and pull off and then go pick up your girlfriend and go to the skating rink. It wasn't, you know, these weren't like, you know, very heinous, malicious crimes. And again, not in the game, like this was a horrible decision making, right? But like, that was like the norm. Like that was like, oh, okay, cool. Mike Doe and John Doe riding a car together, stolen car together to school. And after school, they want to give me a ride home. So it was nothing to hop in the backseat. I'm like, hey, cool. I'm going to hop in the backseat. We'll drop in, you know, we'll ride around, maybe go to McDonald's or something, go home and, you know, probably repeat the same thing the next day. The, the My fate was a little different. Wow. I think people don't really understand enough about how much the environment and, like you said, that word norms, right? What What is norm? What is the normal? What is yeah. the expectation? And for some people, those things that you just rattled off seem like uh, abhorrent exceptions, right? And they didn't grow up like you. They didn't grow up where you were, right? So you're standing from the judge, you get in and you get the sentence, which I'm sure your family could appreciate the severity of it. But you, uh, I guess, were like, yeah, whatever, right? So, so then you get into to the system so to speak and uh so when when did the reality sort of hit i mean oh yeah yeah the family knew right i mean from the uh, initial arrest in fact when i got arrested i wasn't even scared of the police of the judge of the pro like none of that it was all like are you going to call my mom because i may get put on punishment for this and the police were looking at me like dude you have much bigger <laughs> problems than like you worried about mom right with your mom you know what i mean and i'm meanwhile like i'm literally like in the jail like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm nervous. Is someone going to tell my mom? Because this is, like, scary for me, right? And and it, it was even at the courtroom when everyone was boo-hoo crying, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, why is everybody crying? Year, I mean, I'm talking about I'm now months in, year one, I'm still calling home 
telling my mom, like, hey, I know I've been in here for a year already, but on my birthday, clearly the, the judge will let me out. I mean, the judge won't let me serve another birthday in prison, right? Like, that's just not going to happen. Definitely not Christmas. Like, my girlfriend promised that she was going to buy me a Kenneth Cole t-shirt. So, I mean, I know that he's not going to keep me there through Christmas. And then Valentine's Day? I mean, really? I mean, come on. I mean, I got to I gotta buy Valentine's for my entire class, right? Like, these are things that, you know, were, like, that was my world. It wasn't until I was about two years in, I'm like 17 years old, I'm two years in, and I was walking around a prison rec yard with my, with my boy, um, Danny B. And Danny B was about, you know, mid-50s, um, early 60s at the time. Now, mind you, prison is the only place where a 17-year-old can call his boy that's 50, you know, somebody that's 50 years old his boy, right? Like, that's yeah. like, you know, it's a, it's a different environment. Because everyone is the same there, right? As long as you got an inmate number, you're the same, right? Right, and right. so um, I'm walking around the track with him and I asked him, I'm like, bro, how long have you been here? He looked at me. He told me that he had been there for 31 years. And that was the moment that my heart dropped, my palms got sweaty, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that I was going to have to do all eight of mine. Wow. And so did that change how you lived your life day to day? Oh, yeah. Like everything changed. Right? Like I went from going from that happy-go-lucky, no worries, I'll be home next week kid to now, you know, officially in my head, prison inmate 247-384 that was going to have to live there. And I got instantly depressed, like instantly. You know, it was I was very dark. I started adjusting into the world that was around me. Before then, it was like, all right, all of you guys are locked up. Like, and I know I'm here with you, but I'm going home. And, and again, remind you that my judge, the way that my judge sentenced me, he sentenced me to spend my time in maximum security prison. And so everyone that was there, you know, the, the, the lowest sentence that people had was like 50 years, 40 years. And here I am as a kid with eight years. And, wow, you know, this is this is interesting, right? Like people are getting stabbed up over the, the most trivial things here. There are beefs with people, you know, Richmond, Virginia versus D.C. And I'm from D.C., so now I, I don't know anybody that's in here from D.C., nor do I know anyone here from Richmond, but because they heard them from D.C., now I'm a part of this new beat. I had to walk around a prison wreck yard with a knife in my hand everywhere I went. I had to make sure that my hair was on a swivel everywhere I went. And I didn't want my mom and my family members to, to be a part of this new cultural norm for me. I was, you know, so I got really, really dark. I mean, I wanted to pull everyone away from me. I was like, look, don't write me anymore. Don't visit me anymore. I won't talk to you anymore. Start grieving now. It's likely that I'll die here, right? Because I'm not going to allow anyone to to treat me a certain type of way. And if you have that mentality, that attitude in prison, that means that you're asking for altercations. And if you're asking for altercations, then it's likely that they'll escalate. And if they escalate, then you may have to use that that knife that you have, you know, take to your thigh, Marcus. And, and if that's the case, then cool beans, so be it. I'll just get an additional 50 more years. My mom lost her mind when she heard that mentality start to show its face. Wow. I would imagine she, <laughs> and, and yeah, she must have, did she visit you and uh, check in on you regularly? I mean, before then, my mom would come and visit me periodically. You know, she would visit me at least guaranteed once a month, right? Because, I mean, I was like four hours away from home. You can only visit. Four hours. Wow. Yeah, man. They shipped me far, right? So they shipped me to a prison that was very, very far. So now I'm four hours away from home. My mom, she has to drive four hours, come and sit with me for 30 minutes and then drive four hours back, right? Tough, right? I mean, in hindsight, now, again, mind you, at that time, like I was a kid, I couldn't understand what that even what that even meant, right? Like to act, I'm like, hey mom, come and visit me. And she's like, oh, okay, cool, I'll be there Saturday. And and, and not understanding what an eight hour drive with a 30 minute break looked like. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I didn't understand that, right? I didn't understand the magnitude of that kind of sacrifice, but she continued to do it. And then when she noticed that new Marcus turning, that she seen me turn that corner, she got very nervous. And she said, Marcus, you have lost your mind if you think that I'm gonna let you go to this new prison culture. And that's when she came to visit me one day and made a promise in that prison visiting room. She told me, she said, Marcus, I'm going to write you a letter or send you a picture every day from this day forward for the remaining six years of this sentence until you come home to help you understand that there is light after prison. Wow. Every day? Every single day. Every day. Something came through that mail slap, right? That's a mom. Oh, man. Like now, right? Mothers love, man. Like, oh, my goodness. I, I mean, 
you know, and, and, and to be honest, at the time, again, like, I'm like, mom, here she comes prancing into a prison visiting room like I'm in summer camp, talking about she going to send me a bunch of pictures. I'm like, lady, you know what I got to deal with back behind those double doors? Yeah. You're talking about some daggone pictures. I don't care about no pictures. But it would, like, after week one, and then month one, and then week two, you know, week 14, and then, you know, month six. And next thing you know, not only am I loving every moment of every photo and every letter that she's writing me and we're engaging and we have this amazingly, you know, communicative relationship, but even my friends that, you know, were on the housing units with me, which gave an entire housing unit a glimpse into the world through my mom's lens. It was incredible. Wow. It's amazing that that pivot point, right? Like you said, this combination of depression and anxiety and stress and trauma associated with trying to protect yourself and yet represent yourself in a way that you don't feel like people are just going to come at you constantly. I mean, that's that's like that's like war psychology type stuff. Bro, it was literally, I tell people all the time, like, you know, I knew in prison, I wasn't worried about safety in prison. I knew my hands could keep me safe. You know, I didn't grow up in a neighborhood that fighting was, you know, <laughs> obscure. Like people, you know, that, that it was a it was a part of the, the, the growing up process. You know what I mean? And so I never was concerned about that. I knew my hands would keep me safe. It was the mental warfare that you can never prepare for. I don't care how old you are, but especially when you're a kid, it's like, man, like try to balance the natural energy that you're feeling that makes you want to just bounce off the walls and go outside and play basketball with your friends and, and talk about things that don't make sense and all of that kind of stuff that a normal teenager would do. Like all of that was completely erased out of my life by some slamming doors and some people blowing whistles telling me where I went, where I was supposed to go, what I was supposed to do at every moment of my day. And so when you have that different kind of makeup, it forces you to have to learn how to navigate through these things mentally and then try to figure out how to bake all of those things together to successfully make it to your release date. And like I'll tell you, I mean, the environments where I was incarcerated, like if I was at a minimum security facility, maybe it would have been different, right? But the environments where I was, like that was a challenge. Yeah, it's it's an amazing experience. And it's one of those things that probably like war. It's like you you can't explain enough for people to really understand it. And so you got released, you did your whole eight years. What was life of reentry like? Yeah, I mean, you're right. There's no way that you can, you know, I mean, I, even now I can try to articulate as best can. And, but, and, you know, until you're waking up at 7 a.m. to people screaming across the hall saying, you know what I mean? He poked me, he poked me, he stabbed me, he stabbed me. And they're all locked in a cell. You see medics running down the hall. And then 10 minutes later, you see that person being wheeled down a, the wreck yard in a body bag. And you're like, this is what you have to look forward to, you know, on your 18th birthday. Like, you're like, dang, man. Like, wow. All right. Let's pop the gates. Let's see how this day, how this day goes. And perfectly, I make it through another one, right? Like that's that there's a challenge there. And it's hard to talk about what you have to go through 365 times um, every year, right? Now, 2004 comes. I've done eight years. I'm 23 years old. I, I really can't even explain where I've been for almost like the last decade of my life. Um, my last grade completed was the ninth grade. And now I'm thrust back into the community, right? Like I, I got locked up in 96 where there was no internet. I come home in 2004, there's Google. Right. <laughs> oh, that's like the whole world changed. You know what I mean? Like stoplights had cameras in them. Like it was like things that were like so mind blowing for me. I'm like, what? No, what are they taking pictures of? Right, right. You know what I mean? Like it was so, it was so, it was fascinating to me, but challenging as well. And trying to navigate through that, it has some challenges. And then you add on to that, that I was a convicted felon. So now I'm like 23 years old as well with the with the big F on my chest that stands for felony and trying to figure out how to readjust back into this new world. Interesting time. Yeah. Were you able to find a job? Did you go back to school? How what, what, how did you approach life again? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I applied for job after job after job because now I'm like, I'm home and my mom, you know, she literally, I mean, she did all of that time with me and wanted to make sure I stayed safe and all that kind of stuff and wanted to make sure I had everything I needed. Now I'm like home and she's like, look, I don't care what you do for real. Just don't go back to prison. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't care what you do, where you go, just don't go back to prison and I'm good. If you find a job, that's awesome, right? Like, go get a job at McDonald's. Like, I don't really care. Like, I got you. Don't Just don't go back to prison, right? And so I'm like, Ma, look, you know, I've been reading. I've been writing. I've been following the Wall Street Journal and playing the stock market game. I understand how to invest in real estate. I want to be able to be a, a real estate salesperson. I'm going to get a real estate license. I'm going to do this. And I'm, I have all these dreams and aspirations. And my mom is like, this is awesome. And I support all of that. 
let's go, let's go get to it, right? And, and, and so I did, and I applied for these jobs. But the reality that I wasn't prepared for was that I had a, a completely different struggle because now I'm a 23-year-old man with a felony on his record applying for jobs and having to hit that checkbox that says, have you been convicted of a felony? And that was, that was, I mean, that like, it, it's like it beat me up all over again when I was getting denied after job after job after job. So that was, that was a challenge immediately after release. Yeah. And I would imagine that basically it's a non-starter once you check that box for whether they're explicit about it or not, right? <laughs> Ball game. You know what I mean? Like once you check the box, it's like, oh, for real? You knew good dude. You knew good as well we wasn't giving you a gig. Why would you even come in here applying for this job? You knew that you had this, you knew that you had this crime on your record. Are you kidding me? Get out of my office, right? Like that was literally the vibe that you would get when you were going to some of these offices and apply for jobs. But eventually, finally, I was able to find one um, that still asked me that question, have I been convicted of a felony? But this time, it asked me, had I been convicted of a felony within the last seven years? (laughs) Now, after serving eight years in prison, I could say, honestly, I have not been convicted of a felony within the last seven years. Um, And that was the first company that gave me a shot. Nice. Yeah. Jeez, oh, that's amazing. I want to unpack that a little bit more. So we will take a short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Marcus Bullock from FlickShop. Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information, and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The Plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual pro membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long-form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes, such as our Black-owned VC firms index, or the top 100 Black researchers in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Use code UNFOUND to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug, insights.com. So we're back with Marcus Bullock from FlickShop. So Marcus, you were saying that you got the one qualifying question that allowed you to answer in a way that basically opened up the possibility of you getting employed. And where was that? How did that work? Yeah, and so it was at a paint store, and they were like, hey, you know, we want you to come in here and mix paint for us for a minimum wage. And I'm like, bet, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm super pumped, you know what I mean? And, and so I did, and so I was that guy who you will find behind the painting counter mixing you that, you know, I think when I, when I was there, the, the most famous color was aquamarine blue. That was interesting. <laughs> That's funny that you remember that. A lot of those gallons. <laughs> and and that, now I'm like, I'm working this paint store. I'm mixing paint. Customers will come into the paint store and they were like, Marcus, how much do you charge to paint my kitchen? I'm like, well, Miss Johnson, we don't paint kitchens. We sell you this aquamarine blue so you can paint your own kitchen. And then the painters will come into the paint store and they're like, man, it's tough out here. You know, the market's getting ready to change. We're getting ready to hit a recession. My job is laying people off. You know, I'm looking for gigs. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like people, there's Miss Johnson's of the world that come here every day asking to paint. And then that's when a light bulb went off. And I started Prospectus Painting Contractors. It was my first foray into business, and I started a company. That is an amazing pivot point, right? I mean, some people would be like, hey, coming from the experience you just came from, man, I finally got a job, stability. Um, maybe you're used to routine in prison, and that sort of that's built into your mind that you you know you appreciate that in some kind of weird way that prison has has some freedom in that you don't have to decide. But you said you know what, I'm going to go do something entrepreneurial and innovative. How do, how do you make that connection? How do you how do you emerge from there and say that to yourself? It was very organic. It wasn't like, you know, hey, we're going to go start this big painting business. We're going to, you know, get some people and start. It was like, look, Miss Johnson, I can paint your kitchen for you. Of course I can. No problem. I'm going to charge you $200. And she's like, oh, okay, awesome. When can you paint it? I'm like, I can paint it for you next Friday. I'll have my team come over and we can get you taken care of. Did you have a team? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I will wait until those, I will wait until one of those painters come in. I'm like, yo, bro, what you doing next Friday? Are you are you busy? Like when you get finished painting at the elementary school you're painting, can you do some after work, after hours work on the side for me? I get you to paint the kitchen for me real quick for $150. And they're like, all right, cool, bet. I do it. I, you know what I mean? Extra $150, you know what I mean? For a couple of hours of work after work, bet. 
So they only come in, they would paint it for 150. I would charge Ms. Johnson 200. She would get her kitchen, kitchen painted. I would make 50. The painters will make 150. Everybody walks away happy. And then I ask myself, how can I replicate that over and over and over again? Until it got to a point where I'm like, we had enough business that will allow me to be able to quit my job um, in retail and start jumping into this new construction industry. And you built a pretty successful company around that, right? It was incredible. I mean, we started painting homes. It was residential. And then we, you know, we got our first uh, McDonald's restaurant that allowed us to get into the commercial space. A few, uh, maybe a year or two later, I was able to land the contract for a BWI airport. And once we land that airport contract, it was ball game. It was like no looking back from there. It allowed us to be able to employ, you know, employ a bunch of people and, and give opportunities that I had never dreamt of being able to do. It was incredible. I went from going from that guy who was being declined for jobs to now being the CEO of a company that was painting some of the places that we all knew about in this area. And and it was incredible. Nice. And so tell us again, you've sort of made it quote unquote, right? You struggled, you meet the challenges, you have the successful business. How does FlickShop come into the picture? How how does this idea emerge and what made you sort of say, I got to go build that too? Again, very organically, right? It was like it was an accident, just like the just like the painting business. I mean, it was one of those things. I mean, you as you can imagine, my life changed drastically once the construction business started to take off, right? I mean, my mom was able to retire from the government. You know, she had I, you know I was able to get her a nice luxury vehicle for a retirement gift. I'm living in this amazing, you know, three bedroom condo. It ain't but me. I don't even know why I had that many bedrooms. That was the stupidest first job. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, right, like, I'm on top floor looking down. I mean, this is, my life was, like, amazing, right? I'm, I got a drop top BMW that I'm driving around in. It's my work car. Like, this is incredible, right? Like, everything is going amazingly. And my friends, the same ones I grew up with in those sales, the same ones who I created those amazing relationships with, they would hit me. And they're like, bro. This is incredible what you've been able to do. Like, like, dude, this is amazing. We need to see this. Do you not remember when your mother used to send you those letters and those pictures? Why are you not taking pictures of this stuff and sending it to us? Like, I've never been outside of Washington, D.C., and you're in Spain. I want to know what Spain looks like. Like, what right. in the world do you mean that you can see the fish swimming at the bottom of the water while you're in the Bahamas? I need to see this, right? Like, dude, don't forget about us. And I felt horrible, right? Like, I felt like I was living my best life. And I was like, man, I can't believe that. You know, I knew how valuable mail was in prison, right? And and, and if you, unless you've been there, you don't understand the value of mail in prison. It's like, you know, think about the the dopamine that you receive every time someone clicks the like button on a Facebook post, and you multiply that times one hundred, and that's what the feeling is like when you get mail in prison. And I wasn't delivering for my friends. I knew that I had to be able to figure out a way to solve that problem and jump in. That makes sense, and I would, I can, I can empathize. I would be in the same position. Like, yeah, I need, I need to find a way to share this. And so how did that spin into becoming FlickShop? So, I mean, I, I looked in the app store, right? That was the place where you would get everything. I looked in the app store and tried to look for a solution. Um, I mean, there was an app to help me get my coffee quicker, right? So, I mean, I knew there had to be a solution to help me, you know, connect with my boys that were in jail. And when we looked in there, we didn't see one. Um, I started Googling how to build a mobile app. So we took a bunch of revenue out of that construction business and then started learning how to build a mobile app. And lo and behold, about a year after, you know, maybe not a year, maybe about six months, six to nine months, I think, you know, we started doing a bunch of research, talking to a bunch of people, getting smacked in the face with some crazy pricing. And then later on, we finally built a small team that allowed us to be able to build what you know now today is Flipshop. Nice. And the way it works, basically, just so the audience knows, is essentially the app allows you to take a picture or to, I imagine, import pictures and then add some words and sentiments. And essentially, you turn that into a physical postcard that gets sent via physical mail to the inmates. You got it. Exactly. Hit the nail on the head. I couldn't have said it better. And and what we wanted to accomplish was the same level of love and care and adoration that my mom had for me when I was there. We wanted to ensure that my friends were receiving the same. And, and we were able to do that successfully with Flickshop. So now, just like my mother would take those one-time use 24 exposure, you know, Kodak cameras and, you know, to the Walgreens to get them developed, send me a picture every day. Now family members can sit on their sofa and take the pictures from their Instagram or their Facebook or their phone's camera roll, add them to within our app, press the send button, and you got it. We take that and print it on a real tangible postcard, add postage to it for you, and ship it directly to any person in any sale anywhere in the country. 
do the prisons have any, is there any challenges with them in terms of accepting these? Or are they like welcome them? Or how do the prisons feel about it? Well, we spent our first three years jumping through that bureaucratic red tape, right? You can only imagine, you know, trying to introduce this level of innovation to that kind of community. We got a lot of pushback. Yeah. And initially it was like, it was horrible, but it was only because they had never seen anything like this before, right? And, and a lot of these facilities, they're in these rural communities. You know, like, like I said, I was four hours from home in the middle of some cornfield somewhere they erect a prison. And so the people that work there, they had never seen anything like this, right? I mean, they a lot of the folks there at that time still had flip phones. So they didn't even have a smartphone to even understand how this technology worked. And so we had a lot of pushback on it. We were very innovative and new at the time. And eventually what they learned was that they were able to shorten the amount of time that they spent on um, searching their mail because they were now just postcards versus envelope mail. They knew that they could save on a lot of their security issues and breaches because of um, our meter postage that were on, on each one of our postcards versus having an asphyxiated stamp that could potentially hide a drug or any other kind of contraband behind the postage. Like there were solutions oh, wow. that they that they enjoyed that they knew that they couldn't replace anywhere else. And so now these facilities are huge fans of our product. That's awesome. And, that, you know, people, again, people don't understand who aren't a part of this ecosystem, what it's like. I mean, just what you said about a stamp and them having to investigate a stamp because of the possibility that contraband is coming in on it. I think most people wouldn't even, that wouldn't even cross their mind. Wouldn't cross their mind. Like now, and that was the thing for us, right? That gave us the one up. Like I know what prisons were looking for when they thought about how to make, you know, get successful communications back to their the, the residents that live in these facilities. And how are we able to deliver on it to ensure that not only we were there to support the family members and the people that lived in the cells, but we also did it in a way that made the people in the facilities, the administration, their lives easier and made the facility overall safer. And these were some of the tools that we baked into our product. Uh, whether it be the actual tangible postcard and some of those things I just mentioned, or even how the technology works. Uh, and we were really proud of that. Like most businesses, they sound simple on the surface, right? But then you get into it and it's like, oh yeah, we got to do that. And we didn't think about that. And oh, look at this, this extra benefit now. Maybe we can help uh, use that to expand our reach or wow, this challenge, we never even saw that coming. So, and in and, and terms of uh, scale, I mean, how, have you sent thousands of postcards or... Yeah, I mean, so, so far, uh, we've connected over 170,000 families with our technology. We ship over a half a million postcards. And we're excited about continuing to grow, especially during these times that we're living in now and during the pandemic where prison visiting rooms are closed and families don't even have the opportunity to be able to see their son or their daughter or their husband or wife. And we want to be able to make sure that that connection stays running rampant the same way that you and I, again, double tap on someone's Instagram post, that, you know, knowing and understanding that they're safe, right? They're in the home, they're safe. They're cooking meals with their children. They're playing games on, on social. They're on TikTok dancing, right? Right. The people in prison just don't know what's happening in their daughters or their son's lives until now. And we're excited that so many families are leveraging our technology in order to be able to say, hey, listen, I am home. I am safe. I am okay. I still love you. And we're going to get through this together. To build a platform that allows for that to happen is, is something, again, I'm, I'm very, very proud of. That is an incredible aspect of this I didn't even think about, right? So in COVID-19, we're all on Zoom and, and everything's virtual. And in the prison, the prison system, you don't have that option. And in fact, like you said, it's worse than that in that the physical visits are curtailed. So I would imagine that connection point is even all the more important. Have you got any favorite stories that you could share about success from FlickShop? Absolutely. So there's one I'm always excited to share, and that's the story of my boy, Robert. Robert came home after doing 21 years and his last part of his sentence is when he started receiving these Flickshop postcards. Luckily, Robert was coming back to DC where we also have the Flickshop School of Business. It's a training vehicle that allows for us to be able to, to take some of our successes of prison to entrepreneurship and build a curriculum around it that allows people in the, the re-entrant in DC to go through this 12-week course that teaches them how to successfully re-enter back into the community. So I meet Robert in one of our sessions and I'm like, man, this is incredible. 
right? Like Robert is, he has, you know, an awesome story of 21 years and come home with this level of positivity. Cause I promise you, I mean, I did eight years and I mean, if I had to do eight years in one day, I don't know if I would have come home being as positive as I was, right? Right. And it was like, literally like God knew if he would have gave me eight years in a day, it'd have been ugly. But this guy did 21 years and still came home and excited about life. And after going through our program and learning about it, leveraging our postcards to leverage some of those resources that go in, because when we first launched, there were only family members who were using our technology. But now since then, you know, you have law firms who are using our technology to let their clients know about updates to their case files. You have reentry programs that are letting people know, hey, this is where you should come in order to be able to receive services when you get home from prison. They're leveraging our data and our technology in ways that we never dreamt about when we first launched this thing. We have, you know, Department of Motor Vehicles that are sending flick shops to people to say, hey, this is where you come to get an ID or a driver's license when you come home because we know that you're going to need this. This is where you come to go get a Medicare card when you come home because we need to make sure that you're insured. These are things that we just never dreamt about. And Robert's getting these things. He learns about us. He comes and rolls in a class. Today, Robert is successful. He's been home for a couple of years now. He has two jobs where he's holding and making awesome money. He has his own place. He's married, has a child now. And he commonly texts me back and says, Marcus, I'm so grateful for this opportunity that you guys had just in sending these postcards. Had it not been for those postcards letting me know where I should go when I came home, there's no way that I would be on this trajectory towards success. That right there is enough to warm your heart. And you're thinking when you're asking yourself, should I continue to get up in the next day and fight this battle, pushing this big boulder up a hill, trying to figure out how to solve real justice reform policy problems with technology? The answer is yes. Robert, make sure we know that every time that we hear his voice. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing, you know, this is more than just, you know, sort of a technology commerce type play, right? I mean, really what you're doing is with uh, FlickShop uh, School of Business and some of the other programs that you're doing, it's, it's kind of a holistic approach, right? It's about restoring humanity and dignity and citizenship and capability to, to men and women who essentially, once you're into that system, I think in some ways are thrown away by society and, and written off. And so obviously as a model yourself of somebody who can emerge and be impactful to society, I think it's really cool what FlickShop is doing. Because, you know, you could have your construction business and you could have just had FlickShop as like a little side thing. And, you know, this is my way to give back. But you're, you're, you're kind of diving in head first. Yeah, man, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for saying that and even acknowledging it, right? Because, you know, this could be a thankless job, you know, so, so often. But here's the thing, the reality of it is, is that I knew, that we all know the, we all know the recipe for success. We know that if, if we support our children all the way through school and they decide to go to college, then we know what support looks like the entire time they're there, right? We don't think of it as something like, you know, a bear on us to be able to support someone as they go through the next challenging phase of their life over these next four years while they're in school. That's right. And then we also know that once they come home from school, we can continue to support them as they think about what their life is going to look like after graduation, right? So post-graduation, there's a bunch of conversations that we're having with our family members around employment opportunities, what careers look like, maybe apprenticeships, you know, what kind of vocations are you interested in? How are you thinking about your family from that point forward? You, oh, are you dating someone now? What is your life going to look like once you potentially get married to that person? Are you going to have children? Very, these are very real life questions that we ask for people when they're going through these things. The reality of it is, is that we are have this thing, this notion around people that are in these sales as that they don't need that kind of love. They don't need that kind of handholding. They don't need that kind of support. And I want to backdoor to say not only do the people that need it probably even more, but we have this expectation for success after prison as if they just graduated from a four-year college or university, but yet we don't provide them with the tools for success. We have these, you know, these guidelines that say, hey, when you get released from prison, you must go report to your probation officer immediately and you got 30 days to find a job. You have 60 days to do this. You need to make sure that you report to me often. You have like all of these things that we we layer on top of people, right? After they just, I mean, remember again, like I said, use me for example. I went in before the internet, then there was the internet. I had to go apply for jobs on tablet and I had never seen a tablet before. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I have no idea. I, in fact, another true story. When I, the first time I went to go, um, I went to go talk to someone about getting one of these new phones. They were like, "Oh, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to download, you know, you got to download an app to call someone." I'm like, "Wait a minute, I got to fill out a, another application just for my phone." And they're like, "There's no app. You got to use the app on your phone." 
I'm like, well, what app? Like, where's the application? And they're, and they're, they're looking at me like I'm crazy, right? And yeah. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And they're like, what is wrong with you? It's an app. And I'm like, well, why do I have to fill out an application just to use the phone, right? And, and so those kinds of levels of support are missing for these people, 2.3 million of them that are sitting in these sales. Yet we say, when you come home, you better be successful. Well, we want to figure out a way to be able to help actually soothe and pace you for a real success. I love it. That's great insights and great comparisons uh, for sure to quote unquote normal life. We'll take a short break again and we'll be right back with Marcus Bullock from Flickshop. Who gets to be called innovative or genius? If we look at the current media landscape today, we often don't see people of color dominating the business or tech news headlines. I'm Sherelle Dorsey, data journalist and founder of The Plug. Our work in reporting has been featured in and used by top names like Vice, The Information, and casting directors at ABC Shark Tank. The Plug cuts out the noise to bring you news, insights, and analysis of trends shaping venture capital, startups, policy, and ecosystems within Black innovation communities. Join our annual pro membership and get exclusive access to our weekly long-form reporting and monthly member calls, which puts you directly at the table with leading innovators and firms around the country. Also access our data libraries of indexes, such as our Black-owned VC firms index, or the top 100 Black researchers in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Use code UNFOUND to save $10 on our annual subscription at tpinsights.com. That's T as in the and P as in plug, insights.com. So we're back with Marcus Bullock from Flickshop. So Marcus, let's talk a little bit about being a tech entrepreneur. Have you done fundraising? Have you had a fundraising experience so far? Are you doing fundraising now? It's so funny. It's interesting because I just learned what that meant for entrepreneurs just a few years ago. Like I I came home in 2004 and I've been starting and running businesses since 2005. And I I thought that the only way, and it's 2020, right? (laughs) Right. And and I thought the only way that you could run a business is through revenue. I'm like, well, clearly the only way that you can, you know, but later on, I learned um, about back around about 2017, 2018, I learned what venture capital was. And I'm like, wait a minute. So there are wealthy people that are willing to give you money to start a bit. Like, where have I been? Why have I not been leveraging this, right? <laughs> like, what in the world am I doing? Busting my butt like crazy trying to get this thing going, right? But what ended up happening was it allowed me to learn not only what venture capital looked like, but the language of venture, right? What entrepreneurship looked like, what the differences between being an entrepreneur was and being a startup guy, right? Like, or having a scalable business versus having a, a just a, a business, right? Having a venture-backed company, a corporation versus having someone that's just generating, again, just like out of revenue. Having shareholders versus just being myself. All of those lessons I had to learn, and I learned the hard way, if I'm being honest, because I just, ju- like, just like everything else that I do, because again, you know, I didn't have the social capital that a lot of my peers inside of the tech community have because I just didn't go to Dartmouth and I didn't learn how to write code in, inside of a dorm room, right? So right. my level of experience was minimal and I had to jump through a window, learn how to build my parachute while going, while jumping out, while going down and hoping and praying to God that I don't hit splat. Right. Over the, over the journey, I learned how to do these things. I got accepted into a business accelerator and tech stars. We were able to bring John Legend in and his, his venture fund. Um, they, they invested in Flickshop. And then, you know, that's when things started to snowball for us where we were like, wait a minute, we can actually really scale this idea to be something that was incredible. We knew we saw a, a huge leap go from like 5,000 customers to 20,000 customers. And then we we're like, oh, man, this is something really, really big. And so I pulled myself completely out of the construction business, focused 100 percent in on Flickshop uh, back in around 2018. And over the last couple of years, uh, we've been raising money. We've raised, um, our, you know, raised our first quarter of our seed round. Uh, we're excited about raising a, the, the the last tranche of that, and then continuing to scale up as we think about how to introduce other technologies inside of this the justice space. So you got you dropped that little nugget there. So how how do you come to even connect with John Legend? It was interesting. John's Legend team reached out to me. John had a family member who was in prison. And lo and behold, he wanted to use Flickshop to continue to keep in contact with his uncle. And it was incredible, as he talked about, as I learned later that he had a mom that went through some things. He had other family members that have gone through some things. Because when you think of these celebrities, especially like the the, the quote unquote clean, polished celebrity, you don't think, holy crap, they their, their mom was in jail? Right. Right? Like you would have never thought John Legend's mom was in, you know what I mean? Like had, had been, may have been in jail before, right? And and what I, what, I, what I learned from that experience was that we're all like a few degrees away from someone who made a decision and ended up in our justice system. There are millions of people that have come through there and 70 million since 
right, since we've started um, pulling data on this. You're talking about 70 million people. I mean, you know, 70 million people in the country is a lot of people that I'm sure have someone that's connected to them that knows about this. And so um, John, his team reached out. They wanted to be able to build out a fund called the Free America Fund that was, that was going to support other entrepreneurs like me that had been justice system involved and were building solutions that were social impact driven. He pulled me in. He pulled me up to New York uh, one day to make that announcement that we were going to launch that thing together. And then a few months later, uh, we were one of his pro- portfolio companies. Wow, that's great. And I think, you know, as I was doing my research on you, it was pretty obvious that you've hit a good positive nerve in terms of the story really resonates with people. And so I think the media presence that you have, I'm sure, has been helpful for you. And I've seen your TED Talks and your authenticity, I think, is what attracts people, I'm sure, because you're you're real. Man, I'm so grateful for you saying that. I, mean, I promise you, like, over the years, I mean, this has been a journey for the books, right? Like, I can only try to fragment some of these things that have happened over this journey, right? But what I will say is that I am grateful for all of the hard lessons that I learned, you know, and, and also what, what we're doing in reshaping the narrative of what success looks like after prison, right? Like, there are a ton of Marcus Bullock in those sales right now today waiting for an opportunity for someone to be able to say, hey, I'm going to give you a shot. The reality of it is that the, the, the talent is not lacking. It's the access that is. And I believe that if I can leverage my this opportunity and present myself as the sacrificial lamb and openly talk about me going to prison, openly talk about the mistakes that I made, um, I think that maybe, just maybe, we can reshape how we're thinking about the justice system and how we're engaging with people that are coming out of it. Because I promise you, the next solution that is plaguing you right now is only one person away from developing it, right? And that person may as well, he may be living at Brunswick Correctional Center. She may be living at Villanova Correctional. And and, and that's what we want to try to bring to the light is that there's so much talent there. How can we create a legion of Marcuses? We're just the beginning. We're not an anomaly. I love that. And it, it's a profound redirection of where society should head. So on our podcast, we talk a lot about what it's like to be specifically a Black founder. I and mean, I know we're coming to the end of our time. Oh, we could do a whole show about that. That's a whole other show. Yeah, let's go. Let's jump in, though. We got we got a few minutes. Let's jump in. Let's wrap, let's wrap up strong. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So the question is, you know, you have these three strikes, supposedly, right? No formal education, a felony conviction, incarceration, and you're a Black man. How do you think about those challenges? Has there been one as a tech founder that's been more of a challenge or an impediment or are they combined or how do you think about that? You know, it's interesting because I think that there's it's obvious, it's definitely a combination of each of those that I think that precludes me from opportunity in certain circles. But I also understand, I understood the power of communication and what it looked like in order to be able to, to try to appeal to the emotional side of those that may have had something similar happen in their family members. What I think also allows me to kind of sort of break down some of those barriers with being a convicted felon. Now, that kind of sort of helps break down one of the barriers, but being a black man, there's nothing I can do to change that. When I walk into a venture capitalist office and they say to me, they look at me and they're like, wait a minute, you know, you don't look like the last 10 people that come into my office. You definitely don't have the background of the last 10 people that have come into my office. And even this business model that you're bringing to my desk doesn't look like any of the applications that are surrounding trying to get my coffee to me quicker. So I don't even know how to, to leverage this. I've never been in prison before, so I don't know the value of that. I've never written a check to a company founder before that's working with family members that suffer from this kind of social condition. And, and, and I'm wondering how I can add value to this for you, Marcus. And because I don't think that I can, I'm probably going to walk away from this deal. Like sometimes it, 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 it's painstaking to know that I'm the one that's coming into the room with a felony written very boldly on his chest. And not only am I have to have a felony, but I'm like the black guy that's introducing the tech to be able to support people that are in prison. And these venture capitalists have no idea how to be able to support that. And it, 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 especially at the seed rounds where we're raising money now, where most uh, most investors, they want to be involved in their investments. They want to be able to give feedback and input or make connections or, you know, introduce the vendors. Like these are things that add value for them that make them feel like this is a worthwhile investment. And then they meet me. 
And they're like, wait a minute, Marcus, I, I can't add value to this because I don't, I've never, I've never been to prison before. I don't know anyone in prison. I don't even understand why mail is important to people in prison. And why would you continue to want to build technologies to help support this kind of community? In fact, Marcus, it, this sounds great. It's a great story, but I can't add value. So I'm going to walk away from this deal. And I've learned that through all, all of those headaches and all of those meetings that we go to and all of those doors that get slammed in our face, that it's not really my job to be the one to help convince someone as to why they should invest in an entrepreneur that looks like me, that comes from the, the, the comes from the communities that I come from. I want to do my job to the Lord and say that God is going to continue to bless me because I'm doing what he called me to be able to do. And I don't want to get too overly spiritual here, but that is the thing that helps me to be able to jump through all that red tape that gets erected the moment that people find out either about my background or my skin color when they think about investing or partnering in with an organization like mine's. And so now I walk through the world not even feeling the pressure of being a, a founder of color or a founder of color with a felony. I'm like, man, look, we are building a heck of a solution. I'm, I'm giving you this opportunity to get in early. If you don't want to partner with me early, that's fine. I promise you. I've been eight years in prison when I was a 15-year-old kid. I promise you I can build a mobile app. What I will do is continue to build this thing and blow it up. And if you're going to look back and you're going to say, damn, he actually did it. I wish I would have got in. I love that. I love that spirit and enthusiasm. And you're right. You, you, you have a larger horizon. And, you know, the thing about investors is uh, it's almost like selling a house to some degree in that all you need is just one or two people who love that house Man. to come and buy it. Right. <laughs> and it's like if everybody else doesn't love it, that doesn't matter because you only need those people who are going to be, like you said, that value add, supportive, understand. And even if they haven't lived it, can be understanding and enthusiastic about solving a real impact. And so I'm excited for you. And I'd love for you to share with the audience just how can they get a hold of you? How can they help Flickshop? How can they find out more information? Yeah, thank you. So I'm easy to find on all social networks at Marcus Bullock. If you maybe there's an underscore in there somewhere, but on Instagram, we're at underscore Marcus underscore Bullock. Twitter, same thing. Facebook, just search for Marcus Bullock. Or, or shoot us an email. You have a question and you have a family member that's in prison and you don't know how to navigate that. Like we want to be able to be a part of your supporting cast members. Um, so shoot us an email at info at flickshop.com. Um, and, and Flickshop is spelled F-L-I-K-S-H-O-P because I know a lot of people, you know, phonetically add that C in there. So a Flickshop with no C. So F-L-I-K-S-H-O-P. Um, but info at flickshop.com and, and we'll, we'll be sure to get back with you. And if you want to get involved and you want to be, maybe you want to support a family member that has an incarcerated parent. Or maybe you want to support a family who, who just doesn't have the means to be able to, to connect with their loved one. We would love to invite each one of the listeners today to become a Flickshop angel. It allows for a child with an incarcerated parent to be able to send Flickshop to their loved one completely for free. And you can find out more about that at FlickshopAngels.com. I love it. Well, thanks, Marcus, so much. This has been a great conversation and we support what you're doing. And I'm excited that we're able to tell your story a little bit and let you tell your story. So thanks so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was great to be here. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our guest, Marcus Bullock, and our sponsor, The Plug. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen, T-O. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Social media and other promotion by Umama Marzouk. Our music was composed by Bobby Cole, Daniel Bordowski, James L. Dennis, C.J. Harris, Keith Anthony Holden, Russell L. Howard III, Marlon Marlborough, Leonard Sylvester, Robert Valenti, and Bruce Zimmerman. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.